Lord, what a, what a night that was. Dawn of redeeming grace. And Lord, even though we know that the plan was from eternity past, nevertheless, it came into time and space. The plan began on earth. The birth of Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for that. We're so thankful. Lord, this is a season of celebration, a season of thanksgiving. And Lord, we give you the glory that's due your name today. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Please have a seat. In 1962, there was a British organizer and he wanted a band to have top billing for this big event that he had. And he, he auditioned two uh, musical groups. One was called the Tremolos. Some of you maybe have heard them. There was an equally unknown band uh, that was uh, auditioned called the Beatles. Uh, the Tremolos, whom you've likely never heard of, uh, won the contract. <laughs> and, uh, but you may have heard of their, their biggest hit, Silence is Golden. It topped the charts uh, around the world and ended up number uh, 11 of all the songs in the top 100 in 1967. The chorus is, as some of you hear this playing in your mind at this moment, silence is golden, but my eyes still see. I mean, uh, everyone uh, gushed about this lyric. What an amazing lyric this was. Uh, talented songwriters. Uh, well, hold on a second, because... The saying uh, is from antiquity, at least in Arabic anyway. Uh, if speech were silver, then silence would be gold. Now, the Arabs credit Solomon with this uh, proverb, but because it was not in the Bible, it didn't come to us until way late. In fact, it didn't come into English until uh, Thomas Carlyle wrote a book called Sartor Resartus, which is... Taylor retailored, which I have no idea what that means at all. But it was in the 1800s, and I'm sure it was some take on some old uh, dead Greek uh, tale, uh, something to do with depression and war uh, clothed in a Taylor metaphor. But anyway, regardless of that, in that book he translated it, had made its way into Swiss. And it was, speech is silver, silence is golden. And, and while silver-tongued, which is something that we've heard of, came into our speech into English uh, in the early 1500s, the rest of the proverb had to wait for 300 years and didn't become a common idiom until just a few years ago with the tremolos. So what does it mean? I mean, the meaning is, is, is fairly obvious here. Silence is something uh, that is uh, precious, uh, but my eyes still see, meaning that even in silence, one can see the truth. Silence does not mean the absence of truth, or as we've discussed earlier, God not moving in our lives or in the lives of others. It's something 
that we understand to be true. Now, you may say, yeah, John, that sounds familiar. I mean, and you're right, because we talked about this just a few weeks ago. There was silence for 400 years, but Israel never closed their eyes. We heard just this morning about Anna and about Simeon. Their eyes were open the whole way. In fact, they had received a promise from uh, the Lord. They were waiting for just the right moment to see when the prophecies of Malachi would be fulfilled. So when we spoke of the silent years, it was my, it was my hope that you would walk away from here with the sense that those years were anything but silent. They were filled with the movement of God. I quoted Darby, I'll quote him again. He said, God's ways are behind the scenes, but He moves the scenes which He is behind. We have to learn this, he said, and let Him work and not think much of man's busy movements, for they will accomplish God's. This has been proven over and over and over again in the Word of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And uh, for context, we have the whole of 1 through 25, but I'll begin reading in uh, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And we're going to see that it's proven uh, once more. In Luke 1, 5, through 25, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. Yeah, troubled, that's a nice little English word. He was terrified, okay? When he saw him, and fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So the Gospel of Luke, it opens up after these 400 years of silence. The, the Israelites' king was not the one that they had waited for, the Lord. No, it was Herod, Herod uh, the Great. And Herod, by the way, was called the Great for the things that he built, not, not for his character. Uh, this guy was, uh, listen, this guy was so bad that Augustus Caesar, his friend, was quoted as saying, I would rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Now, you've got to understand why someone would say something like that. He murdered his favorite wife because he suspected her of infidelity. He murdered his uncle. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered three of his sons. This guy was a murderer. He was a bloodthirsty and brutal man. And liberal theologians yammer on and yammer on about how the slaughter at Bethlehem never happened because it's not recorded anywhere else in history other than the Bible. Well, when you look at the population of Bethlehem, you may be looking at between 20 and 30 children. And in the area, if you take the environs in, you may be looking at 40 children, which is a horrid, horrid thing. But we lose 25 children a day to war. When was the last time you heard that? This man was so brutal that an event like this didn't even make a blip. You had to be Herod's relative in order to get in the history book if you're going to be murdered. I think it's just lost to history. This man was a cruel and an evil man. I can only presume that Bethlehem was not the only village that was devastated by his power. I mean, the state of Israel was in a, a, a dark and an evil place under Rome, under Herod. They were desperate for a word from God. And yet, as uh, to quote another song, Emmylou Harris sang, the darkest hour is just before dawn. And upon this darkened world, was a, about to come at the dawning of God's presence and power and purpose. And that was evident for all who had eyes uh, to see. But the faith of many people had worn out. I mean, after 400 years, what about his promises? What about what he said he would do? And so for this... Luke moves away from Herod and he moves to the family of an elderly couple who have no children, but who were, as the scripture tells us, 
blameless. They were righteous. And, and that part of the story is, is deeply emotional for anyone who's familiar with the, with the Old Testament and, and that culture. And for some, it may be emotional here. It depends on your, your personal circumstance. But it connected with the deep heartaches of childlessness and, and how the Lord would intervene and change the course of the nation's history based on a child. I mean, think of the narratives from the Old Testament. You have Sarah to begin with. Then you have Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah. There were a couple of, of more. So Luke's inclusion of this bit of information is is very intentional and it's very poignant in that it it does evoke a, a keen sense of sadness here. I mean, because having children, and, and this is something to bring to you some of the culture from the Middle East today and certainly from the ancient Near East, and that is this, that to be, to be childless was in fact to be under the disfavor of God. Bearing children was a command given in the Torah. And therefore, to not bear children was tantamount to being disobedient and rebellious to God. And of course, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You don't have choices in these matters, but it didn't matter in that day. In fact, there are remnants of that even to this day. So in Arabic, uh, you are known, if you're a, a father or a mother... Uh, you're known by uh, father or mother, Abu or Um, and by the uh, eldest, the firstborn son. So all of you have, if you've ever listened to any news at all, have heard of Abu Nidal. Well, that wasn't his name. That means the father of but Nidal, but that's who he was known by, right? So in Arabic, I'm Abu Michelle. And uh, Michelle in Arabic, is a man's name. But when they would find out that Michelle was a daughter, uh, they would look at me with great sadness, and they would say, they would say, perhaps yet it may be the will of God for you to have a son. Now for Um Michelle, that's Barb, <laughs> it was worse. And... Uh, there would even be tears involved sometime. But the compassion was overwhelming. But the ever-present question was, why would not God allow you to have a son? Why would he withhold this blessing from you? Behind that sentiment, and this is where I'm moving to, behind that sentiment is the notion that we had done something wrong and were under the disfavor or even the punishment or even the curse of God. That is today. You need to get in the Wayback Machine and understand how Zechariah and Elizabeth, this was a tremendous social shame for them that we have no equivalent for in, uh, in today's world, to the average Jew, Zechariah and Elizabeth were cursed. He shouldn't even be a priest, they probably thought. And when the lot fell to him to burn the incense, 
This was extraordinary. I can, you, you just have to step back and imagine their, their disbelief here. Now, you've got to understand what's happening here. Josephus tells us that at that time, there were 20,000 priests who would function in the temple. Obviously, not all at the same time, right? So they worked in, and the Bible even says it there, he was in the division of Abijah. So they had these twice a year. They would go up for a week, and they would do their thing. They would, uh, worship, uh, they would uh, uh, do the service in the, in the temple. And then uh, they were like military reservists. It's your turn, you're up. And of those priests who were there, they would cast lots, and whoever got the... Because this was an honor to burn the incense. You got to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but you got into the holy place. You got to go to the altar of incense, and you got to burn the incense. So this job was uh, not lowly, it was not mundane, it was very special. And the incense was offered at 9 a.m. in the morning and around 3 p.m. And so everyone would gather. So you can imagine there were uh, thousands of people who would would gather uh, for these things. And so they would pray, and as he offered... You don't understand what's going on here. When the incense went up, the prayers of the nation, the people who were there, went up. So this was a, and, and, and God was able to, uh, to see and, and to hear this. So for an individual priest, the odds of this happening was 20,000 to 1. Okay, so uh, there were many priests, they went their whole lives and they were never selected. So God, this, this harkens back to the message with the 400 silent years. God moved countless bits and pieces in order for this to happen. Now, I'm in the ministry because I felt God place a call upon my life, as, as did Barb. I believe that when God calls one, he calls the other in a couple. And, uh, you know, it's been five years ago now. Uh, that God called us to First Colony uh, Bible Chapel. And we marvel today at the wisdom of God uh, the same as we did then. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Ministry for Zechariah was hereditary. It was hereditary. You're a priest because you were born into a priestly family. That's the way it is. He was never asked. He didn't have any choices in the matter at all. You're a priest. And not only that, his wife was from the family of Aaron. So you've got to understand, when these guys had a get-together and they had a barbecue, every male in the entire family was a priest. So they were all priests. He was an ancestor of uh, Abijah, and uh, if you don't remember who he is, um, that his forefather was Eleazar, who uh, was the chief leader of the Levites. This goes all the way back to Aaron. You know, there's this whole thing there. But the key that the Bible points out, and, and, you, and you go, well, why did he point this out? Well, it's because he had to point out that they were righteous and they were pious before God because God wouldn't choose anyone else to send John through, right? Well, that's true. But there's something else going on here that's 
even more subtle than that. We see Jesus address this any number of times because the understanding was that God can't use them. They are under the disfavor of God because anybody can see it. They have no children. God will not use them. And yet what we have here is God just pushing back in that that whole notion. They were righteous. They were godly people. They worked hand in hand, the same mind, the same heart for God. And as Zechariah was praying there at the... uh, at the incense of altar. Now you gotta have you ever uh have you ever thought you were alone in a room and suddenly discovered that you weren't? That will give you a start. That will that will that will stand you upright right there. So he's in there, he's 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 uh, burning he's burning the incense and su- suddenly he realized there's some Something among us, and it's I don't know I don't know what's going on here. And he was terrified. He was absolutely terrified at the presence of this being. And of course, the first thing the angel says is the first thing most angels say: "So chill, don't don't be afraid." And I can only imagine that to literally, visually, for God to allow you to see the angelic host that may be even right here, be right here now, you would be terrified, as would I. And the angel says, don't be afraid. And then he announced to Zechariah that his prayer had been heard. And then he gave him a whole bunch of information. This is a lot of information right here. He said, Elizabeth's going to bear a son. He's going to be named John. He's going to cause some joy and happiness here. They're going to rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great before the Lord. His whole life, he's not going to drink. He's not going to have any strong drink. He's going to be consecrated to the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to turn many in Israel back to God. People who knew the Bible, they're thinking, ooh, Malachi is happening right here. He's going to go before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He will make ready the people for the Lord. Zechariah was absolutely stunned. Now, in the same time frame here, very nearly so, it won't be much later that an angel visits someone else. A young woman, the young woman named Mary. And her response to the angel was, I am the Lord's servant. Be it unto me as you have said. Do you think for one instant that Mary's mind was not filled with Zechariah kind of questions? Because he's got some questions. He's going to say them out loud here in just a second. Uh, They're in the form of a statement. But you got to understand that Zechariah had been a priest all his life. All the men he knew were priests. When they sat around, you know, at the family reunion, and they talked about their priestly duties, not one of them ever said, the Lord visited me. Not one of them ever said or knew anything of the Lord's activity. 
They didn't. They just dutifully did what they were told to do. So Zechariah had no framework for what happened. None whatsoever. This was completely out of the blue, and he was in front of the angel. Oh, and by the way, which we read, we know is, is Gabriel. But now Gabriel, the great archangel and the guardian of Israel, announced the good news. By the way, this is the first time the good news, that word, is used in the entire Bible, is right here with Zechariah. Evangel. It's used uh, here in verse 19. And Gabriel just poured out this message and assured Zechariah that the Lord had remembered his prayer. The answer, or I should say the content of the prayer, is revealed in what Gabriel said to him. But we do have to ask a couple of questions about that. What, what prayer was that? It was clear that the prayer that he prayed, would, that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that uh, that uh, um, I have Elizabeth, Elijah, and Zechariah running through my mind all at the same time? They're just playing up there, having fun. Do you think that Zechariah had been praying that prayer recently? Do you think that he was still praying that prayer? I, I don't think so. Because based on his response to Gabriel, I can confidently actually say no, because the first words out of his mouth essentially, we're old, I'm old, I'm an old dude, right? And my wife, he didn't call her old, he said she was advanced in years, okay? Well, this kind of language was not used in Greek, unless you were over a certain age. And trust me, that age was over any kind of childbearing possibilities. I don't think that Zechariah was still praying that prayer. Yet the Lord heard his prayer. I want you to listen carefully here to this point. The story doesn't simply tell us something about the birth of John. The story is revealing to us something about the nature and the character of God and his relationship with us. And it tells us something about prayer. Our prayers, this is what I take from it anyway, don't have a shelf life. Do you realize that once your prayer enters into the mind of God, it becomes eternal? It is always there. It is always present. Everything has a shelf life, even us. Listen, that point was so good that the angels began to play. I don't know where that came from, but (laughs) at least it was good. (laughs) I mean, everything has... Right, everything, even including, including us, at least in this form here on earth. But if you've prayed, 
about something and you stopped praying because you came, dis- became discouraged, you most likely think that those earlier prayers just simply went away, were meaningless. They're gone in the past. And God doesn't answer those kind of prayers. God only answers the fervent prayer that you're praying right now. And if you drop those prayers out, done, gone, it's over. I don't see that here. What I see here is that Zechariah had probably stopped praying a long time ago. And as I mentioned, the text supports that notion because he said, when he says, how can I be sure of this? What he's saying is, give me a sign. He's doing a Gideon here. He's saying, look, I'm old. My wife's advanced in years. I don't believe you. I'm not saying that. Gabriel said, you didn't believe me. He didn't believe. He asked for a sign. Uh, and <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is so funny uh, because it shows you that even angels can get emotional. <laughs> You can see, if you've ever seen the way they play uh, Gandalf in the movies of The Lord of the Rings, how he suddenly becomes bigger. And, you know, like if he gets, if he gets upset, it, things get dark and he gets bigger. Here he is, he says, he says, do you know who you're talking to? He says, I'm not, I'm not just any angel, I am Gabriel. I minister, I work in the presence of God, and he sent me here to tell you this. Yeah, you're going to get a sign, all right. Here it is. You're going to be silent because you didn't believe. I want to go back to just saying about that prayer. The scripture does tell us to keep praying. We are to, we are to keep praying. But I want you to understand that we're to keep praying, but not because God forgets. He is not forgetting. If he keeps your tears in a bottle or writes them in a book, however you want to translate that, he remembers your prayers. And so Zechariah remained mute. The worshipers, this went on for a while because the worshipers, they're all outside and they're going, what in the world is going on here? Uh, and then he, he finally comes out and through all the hand motions and this is that, they, they determined that he had had a visitation. And, and so then what happens, Scripture says he goes home, Elizabeth conceives, she spent five months in isolation. What that was about, I, I honestly don't know, but I do know that it was from a righteous uh, heart. So whatever she was doing was uh, probably uh, Eucharist. It was probably, thanks, it was probably thanksgiving that the Lord had, uh, had, had done this. So... As we move towards the, you know, kind of wrapping this story up, I want to just share with you a few things that, that, I, that I take away uh, from this. First, this story helps to explain John's relationship with Jesus. You understand, you begin to see the family connections. You begin to see uh, how the Lord was moving here. You know how Elizabeth and Zechariah were from priestly families and how... And, and how Joseph and Mary were from Davidic families. It's it, this, this wonderful uh, story of how they, they come together. A, a, another thing 
is it shows you, most of us think the Old Testament was written over here, <laughs> and then you have the New Testament over here, and they're not connected. This, this shows you this beautiful connection that even though there were 400 years of silence, it's like you have, and all of you have these, I, at least I pray God that you do, have a friend that even though you haven't seen for a year or five years, when you come back together, it's as if not a moment has passed. This is the way the word of God here is, is you move immediately from Malachi and into this story where you're talking about these things perfectly joined together. And people understood this. I mean, people like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, and, and Anna. Third, God is a promise keeper. He does not, uh, he is covenant-keeping God. He will, for his own purposes, for his own glory, he will disperse, as he does here, his mercy and his grace to the nations. And then, as I mentioned before, fourth, Luke is showing the power of prayer. I have to, I have to tell you, this, this insight for me uh, helps me with what my notions of prayer uh, even, even are. To, yes, God does not forget. We all, we all know that. That's the nature of deity, not to forget. But the amazing thing is, is that even though he doesn't forget, in accordance with his will, he remembers. And when he remembers, it doesn't mean it comes to his mind. It means that he acts in our behalf. And I think this is a wonderful thing. Even sometimes the things that are long dead in our hearts, in our minds, Scripture says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Fifth, faithfulness matters. If God saw Zechariah and Elizabeth's faithfulness, I mean, Zechariah obviously didn't have the kind of faith that Mary had. But nevertheless, what he did have was faithfulness. Where did the angel find him? Do you think that the angel Gabriel would have had difficulty finding him someplace else? Somehow I don't think so. But he found him in the business of serving God. Now, sometimes... We find ourselves in service to God and we don't see always that he is there, but he is. God sees faithfulness. In fact, he meets us on the road of faithfulness, not to faithfulness, but while we're doing what he has asked us to do. would have been easy for Zechariah and Elizabeth to get up, give up, but they didn't. And there's there's so much in here about God's perfect timing. I mean, I'm always reminded when I think of these types of things, Paul's words in Galatians, let us not become weary in doing good. In service, 
And when I say in service to God, understand I mean it the way Martin Luther meant it. I I mean it in that whatever you are doing, you are doing for the glory of God. And if you are doing what you're doing for the glory of God, no matter what your occupation is, God will find you there. And do not become weary in doing that. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I mean, once we truly understand God's operation in our lives, we will understand that what we perceive as silence is actually something marvelous in our benefit. If we open our eyes, we understand that God was working on behalf of Zechariah for his entire life. God was working in that 400 years of silence And in that sense, silence is golden. Theologically, God speaks out of silence. There are times his words create silence. I want to just say, uh, just briefly, but oftentimes, if we don't understand this, we see silences in our worship. We see silences during communion. Sometimes we see that as awkward. Most of the time, it's holy. It's something where God is trying to place something in our hearts that will come out in our lives, in our relationship with him, because silence can contribute to true dialogue. It has a life of its own. And it's completely positive. It's not bad. It's something that is good. You remember... There's a lot of silence in the Bible, by the way. Uh, you may recall that Solomon's temple was built in silence. What an amazing thing. Can you imagine that? And while my heart, while my heart longs to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, I tell you what, I... I think my heart really wants. And yeah, I want those those words. But I think what I really want to, is to see. My eyes to see the unconditional love and compassion and mercy and grace in the silence of the brightness of my Savior's eyes. Father, we we are sometimes silent before you. In fact, sometimes, sometimes that silence can be generated from great agony and pain. When our silence is such that only your spirit can speak for us. Sometimes the silence is different in that it's a time where you're speaking to our hearts. Sometimes it's you allow us just to simply bask in your presence. But may we always have an appreciation for silence. May we come to realize 
as the ancients did, that even though speech is of silver, silence is certainly can be of gold. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.